Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Geoffrey Smart is one of Australia's most popular and significant artists. Born in Adelaide in 1921, he lived in Tuscany for 50 years until his death in 2013. However, he travelled regularly around Europe and back to Australia. Famous for his depictions of stark urban and industrial landscapes, his meticulously crafted paintings show a devotion to line, form and geometry. While many believe his art evokes alienation and impending doom, Smart often said there was no message in his work, he just wanted to paint a beautiful picture. Dr. Nick Gordon is here today to discuss Smart's life and prodigious career. Nick is a cultural historian, lecturer and artist. He holds a university medal and PhD from the University of Sydney and has more than 15 years experience as a lecturer on topics ranging from the classical world to modern and contemporary art in Australia and abroad. Lovely to see you, Nick. I was looking at Geoffrey Smart's paintings again today to prepare for this, and it just suddenly struck me, they really seem so relevant. You know, those empty cities with lonely people not connecting. And I thought, God, that's what we're seeing at the moment because of the coronavirus. Um, Do they have that kind of resonance for you? Uh, They do, yes. And I've been noticing a lot while walking around, uh, just getting some exercise by myself outside, uh, that when you do walk past these spaces in cities or even the kind of entryways to garages for apartment blocks. They've got all of these elements of smart paintings, these very beautiful geometric spaces, but absolutely no one there, no sign of activity in them. So, yes, there is, I think, especially while we're kind of uh, not out and about so often as we used to be, uh, the cities look even more like Jeffrey Smarts than they would normally Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I know people used to say to him that the paintings looked a bit, you know, is that alienation there or desolation, melancholy? And he would sort of say, no, there's no message there. These are just things I feel are beautiful. I want to make beautiful pictures. So, Uh, Yeah, it's interesting the number of different responses people have to Smart's work and that a common thing that people notice is either a very absolute stillness in the work and in some cases, especially with those those deep umberish skies, it can feel a little bit oppressive or there's a, a lack of liveliness uh, that some people feel when they when they look at them. But other people uh, often will look at them and see kind of beautiful structures within it or incidental details that might draw them into the painting and make them ask, well, what is going on here? Kind of why is that person standing by him or herself in a car park? Um, I think it kind of, it's interesting that it kind of the same work can uh, get such a broad range of responses from people. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can go back to the beginning. He was born 1921 in Adelaide, but he painted most of his life in Tuscany. So can you just give us a little bit of, you know, a look at his life and how it unfolded and why he did go to Italy? Ah, uh, Certainly. Uh, so he spent the, about the first 25 years of his life in Adelaide. So he originally, for about the first nine or 10 years, he grew up in suburban Adelaide, which was a very uh, quiet, very staid sort of existence. But his family had to move to the, the city during the Depression because they couldn't afford the mortgage on their suburban house. And he moved into a small flat 
in the middle of Adelaide uh, where he had access, much more greater access to the cities. And as a kid, he used to enjoy walking around, looking at both the the regular broad views in Adelaide, but also the slummy corners of the city too, which he was fascinated with. Uh, in Adelaide, it was also very clear that he, as a kid, that he had a great talent as a draftsman and as a painter. Uh, but his parents couldn't often afford things like a lot of paper for him, so he'd be drawing on the backs of old calendars on butcher's paper. But he follows it up through school and then after school in Adelaide, uh, trained as a teacher and then as an art teacher. And then in the early 40s, he attends the the School of Art and Design in Adelaide where he, he meets uh, Dorrit Black. And Dorrit Black had been working and training in Paris in the 20s and 30s and brought back a lot of these new modernist ideals that came from uh, cubism came from Picasso, came from Leger and others, and she was experimenting, doing her own thing with those, but also teaching that to a whole generation of young artists. So he gets this kind of insight into Europe in the 1940s, and then almost as soon as he can after World War II, he goes to Europe. He wants to get to the source of these things that he's only seen in books, and he spends three years in London, in Paris, and in Italy, living on the island of Ischia and the Bay of Naples, uh, absorbing as much as he can of both the old masters, but also uh, con- uh, near contemporary and contemporary artists. Uh, then he comes back to Australia in the early fifties, and then there's, there's this period where he's living in Sydney, getting by doing one thing or another, working as an art critic. He becomes Fidias on the ABC's Argonauts, working as an art teacher at East Sydney Tech, which is now the National Art School. But in this period, he's still, when you look at his work, he's still not the Jeffrey Smart we know. You can see him experimenting with all of these different ideas. But it's not until kind of the early 60s where we start seeing Smart as we know him come around. So it's not until he's uh, in his early 40s we start seeing these ideas coming together. And shortly after that, he has enough success selling his works in Sydney and London that he gets enough money to go back to Europe. Uh, And then from that point on, in the mid-60s, he decides that's where he actually wants to be and there's no real good reason uh, to come back to Australia except to visit friends and to, uh, to show off his artworks here when they come back. Do you think when he was growing up in Adelaide, the fact that he was gay influenced his career in any way or not? I don't think it had a, a negative influence on his career, uh, and he had been he'd been more or less out since the 1940s. Uh, but I think it has another kind of a, an odd aspect in his work in the late 50s and early 60s in when he's painting in Sydney, uh, where a lot of the places he's painting at Elizabeth Bay, at Rushcutters Bay, at the Coogee Baths were all. Um, places you would go to meet someone, kind of a, the grinder of the early 1960s. Uh, so while he doesn't refer to it directly as that, what, as that's what it being about, uh, it's the, the subject matter itself reflects his uh, knowledge of the gay subculture in the late 50s and early 60s in Sydney. And incidentally, kind of the, the best collection of that period of his work is held by the University of Sydney Art Collection. So whoever was picking up or buying those works in the 60s uh, also seems to have been attuned to these are... Uh, there's a social story, a kind of there's a moment in, in Sydney's history that Smart is capturing in these works too. How were the works received? I mean, there was a lot of abstract art in Australia at that time, wasn't there? And I believe he wasn't really very interested in being an abstract painter. No. So uh, in post-World War II, you start seeing the rise of abstract expressionism in Australia, the kind of the huge boom and the trend towards abstraction in the 50s and 60s. And Smart is kind of uh, 
Well, later in life, he'd refer to abstract artists as people who just never learned to draw. Um, so he didn't have a great love of it. But in the 60s, you can see in some of his works, if you look at the backgrounds of the work, uh, you'll have a wall, for example, that's covered with old posters that are peeling off. Uh, and in some ways, he's kind of showing off that kind of, yeah, I can do abstract expressionism. But for me, that's just the background. It's not a painting itself. So give us um, some of the things that define his work. I mean, the geometry, the use of colour, that, that sort of line and form is so familiar, isn't it? And then the different motifs that he used as well. Uh, yes. Um, so about his own work, he said slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think, that it's just the, the right shape and the right colour in the right place. It's just geometry, really. I think he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there's a lot more going on in his works that's a little bit more subtle than that. But his use of geometry, I think, is exceptional among artists for the rigour of it, that every single object in a painting is placed exactly for a, for a reason. And it's how he's, uh, even from how he's divided up the canvas, the shapes of the canvas he's used, uh, that he's kind of taking all of these elements and moving them around uh, so they create geometric relationships. So while sometimes you might look at him as being very realistic, the scenes that he was actually painting, he might have glimpsed. In some cases, we know kind of uh, he was driving or being driven down the freeway and got a glimpse of something and said, yes, that's the thing I want to paint. But when it came to then working on the composition, uh, if a building needed to be taller, he'd make it taller. If he needed to move a fence from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, he would move it around. And it's all underpinned by this very, very rigorous, very formal geometry. His um, use of colour, though, I think is also part of that. So you'll notice... Uh, often in the backgrounds, they're very sedate colours. Uh, he's using a lot of umbers and very soft colours and then using splashes of very bright, highly saturated colours, the reds, the, re uh, the yellows, the blues of modern cities and signs. But he often places those and gives those a structure so that you get like a little piece of red here, a bit of red there and a big bit of red somewhere else. And that helps give a, a visual structure. So he's kind of very carefully guiding your eye around the, around the painting. I did read that he said people look at paintings left to right, so he always took that into account when he was looking at the composition. Uh, absolutely, yes. There's something that he, one of the things that he was learning both with Dorrit Black in Adelaide and then with Legere in Paris was this idea of dynamic symmetry, where you place things on the left-hand and right-hand sides of a canvas in such a way that it stops your eye from sliding off. So you might have something on the left side of a canvas that's quite strong and attracts your attention, but it also stops me, your eye from sliding off to the left. So that becomes a starting point. And then as you work your way across, there might be another object. In some cases, it might be a pot plant. It might be a head. It might just be the top of a street sign. But it's enough just to balance that thing on the left, on the right-hand side, so that your eye doesn't then fall off the right. So he, kind of, he moves you from left to right and then back into the middle again. Do you know why he was so drawn to urban and industrial scenes? I mean, he lived in this beautiful house in Tuscany with this gorgeous landscape all around, and yet he was painting modern cities, very stark, empty modern cities. Uh, yes, yeah, he's been interested in urbanism uh, from his childhood, from walking around early Adelaide to walking around the bombed-out cities of Western Europe in the late 1940s. And then once he returned to Italy in the 60s, the economic miracle was fully underway with this kind of huge explosion of uh, development in Italy, kind of these new road networks. He's one of the first people to drive down Italy's first Strada, for example. The new train systems, this signage, these cities suddenly appearing out of nowhere. 
And I think he was uh, enchanted from that because he had seen from his youth during the Depression kind of the, the low end of cities and then all this energy and vigour in the post-war period. I think as well part of what he saw in cities is that they're, they're very conducive to painting geometrically. There are lots of very strong volumes. There are lots of planes with buildings, the angles of windows, the angles that are made by uh, the sort of balconies that jut out from buildings as they did in the 50s and 60s. And he's kind of attracted, I think, to the shapes of those things uh, and that the way that you can represent those on a two-dimensional canvas. I read a story about his parents having the print of a painting by a young Russian artist on their wall, Marie Bashkitsev, I think she was called, and it's young children in a Parisian slum. But there's a big fence and then buildings behind, and that reminded me of elements of his work. And I wondered if you thought that was an influence. Absolutely. I think there's all sorts of things that kind of get lodged in a kind of a, a visual imagination uh, well, from when you're a kid onwards and that Smart's very, very good at integrating these different things that he sees around him, whether it's a poster at home or an art gallery he visited or a walk or a drive he went on. And I think in that work there, I think it's uh, the work you might mention is the originals now in the Musée d'Orsay. Uh, it's kind of, it's very, it has a lot of very smart elements. So the, the legs of the people, that group of children at the front, make a series of triangles. Uh, behind them on the wall, there's a little poster that's been stuck on the fence. And then, as you say, you've got these big kind of geometric blocks of the apartment blocks of uh, Paris in the background. I think it's something that does seem to have been lodged in there. Yeah, it's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? He has a fantastic memory for art history and for things that he's seen and he kind of slides these uh, oblique references to other artworks into into his art. Um, he painted very unusual portraits too, didn't he? Famous people, but they're minute and they're dwarfed by the architecture around them. So tell us a bit about those and, you know, are there stories behind those portraits? Often, yes, there are. Uh, and a lot of his more famous portraits were people he knew very well personally, people who were friends. Uh, people such as Clive James, Jermaine Greer, who used to live around the corner from him in Tuscany and used to come to dinner, uh, David Malouf, who we knew from both Australia and from living in Tuscany. Uh, so there's often a kind of a, a, a personal connection he has to his subjects when it comes to painting them. And in some ways, uh, that changes how he decides to paint them. So in the case of Clive James, which is one of his more famous portraits, uh, Clive James's face is actually the size of a postage stamp on this huge canvas. And he said the reason behind that was that he was drawing and studying his friend Clive's face and then he realised that he has a really awkward face, that his eyes are so deep set that no light shines on them, that his cheekbones are on different levels, his ears are different sizes, his neck is huge. Uh, so he kept working and working on these paintings and drawings of him and until he got him down to something the size of a postage stamp and decided, well, that's what you actually need for a portrait of Clive James. Uh, and he puts that postage stamp-sized portrait in the background standing on a bridge in front of this huge yellow fence in the foreground. Uh, and it's because he just had such a weird face. Um, but I think he knew Clive James very well and knew that it kind of a, he would accept the sort of humorous take on it. Whereas other people like uh, Margaret Ollie, who Smart and Ollie knew each other quite well as well, um, Margaret Ollie wasn't quite so happy with that one because she felt that he made her look a bit more uh, dumpy than she actually was uh, <laughs> as she's walking through the Louvre. Whereas the one of Jermaine Greer is, is also quite hilarious. Uh, the, and a bit of the backstory on that is that 
uh, Jermaine Greer used to be coming around as part of a group of Australians and other expats who would be coming around and visiting uh, Smart and his partner, Amez Dazan. And there was a dinner party going on and it turned out that the gentlemen were sitting around the table talking when Jermaine Greer walks in bringing the food and she suddenly realises what's going on here. It's kind of, it's back to the 17th century where this kind of, uh, and refuses to do anything else in the kitchen for the rest of the night, which is kind of fair enough. The original portrait that he did for that uh, has its Germaine kind of scowling quite intensely out of it. But when it came to the painting, he changed it and he kind of, uh, he has her kind of smiling a bit more enigmatically towards you. So there are these things in the background, I think, of these portraits that are uh, part of his personal knowledge of the subject that he doesn't make it obvious in the painting, but it's still still there in the background. Yeah, and he did reference other artists in his work, didn't he? So was that sort of bit of fun playing games, or what was he doing with that? He never really talked about it directly what he was doing because he thought that I, I assume it's because he didn't want to authorize a meaning for a particular painting. But yes, there are frequently references. So some. Uh, in his early life, uh, I think are about influence. So he's very influenced by Giorgio de Chirico, for example. And you start seeing in his early works these very de Chirico-looking buildings or these kind of empty piazzas with nothing but a sculpture in them, which is very reminiscent of de Chirico. But in his later works, he's starting to play with this contrast between the old and the new. So in the corrugated Gioconda, for example, you've got this... uh, corrugated iron fence that's covered with posters and one of the posters on it happens to be the Mona Lisa. And there's this contrast, I think, that he's making between the old masters with Mona Lisa and then the foreground of this huge corrugated fence that looks a bit like an abstract expressionist painting. In other cases, so Matisse at Ashford, one of his uh, uh, most famous later works, you've got kind of these ads for a huge Matisse exhibition that was going on, but it's on a train station. So I think on the one hand, he's trying to elevate the ordinary things of life, like people hanging around waiting for the trains to come in the morning and the higher things he's bringing down, so kind of a a great exhibition of Matisse, he's bringing those together as part of a common visual feel, that these are the experience of walking around a city waiting for a train and seeing a Matisse exhibition equally part of our visual makeup, and he's trying to bring those things together onto the same plane. He was very prodigious, wasn't he? Extremely, yes. Um, although he was, in some ways, he often played down his own skill and own his own ability. And it's often, I think he was quite genuine about it. So he was certainly not a shy and retiring man. Um, he was a great raconteur, uh, extremely sociable. Part of what he liked about being able to paint so much and to be so successful was that it meant that he could go off and see operas around the world. He could go up to London to see a new play. He could flit off back down to Australia to visit friends whenever he wanted. But on the other hand, there's a, a desire in him, I think, to create things that are absolutely perfect time after time. So in, in his later period, so from the, uh, the mid-90s onwards, he reduced his output down to four to five paintings per year simply so he could make each one perfect. At the same time, throughout the 80s and 90s into the early 2000s, he's going up to Florence once a fortnight to go to the British Institute where they've got life drawing classes on uh, because he doesn't think he's a good enough draftsman. He seems to have this sense of draftsmanship as the, the foundation of art. 
and he didn't think he was good enough at it, so he was still going up to make sure that he kept up with the life drawing to kind of keep that skill up, which for, by that stage, an artist who's one of the most established artists in Australia, one of Australia's most successful artists, it's quite, it's quite interesting that that uh, element of humility regarding his own work remained. Yeah, that's fascinating. So how do you see his legacy? I think in many ways his legacy is less on his influence over other artists. So as an artist, he was not ideological. He didn't have a particular view of the world. He wanted to force on other people. He didn't think the kind of that art was a kind of this huge moral endeavour. He wasn't trying to change the world with it. And in that sense, he doesn't kind of create a following of people trying to be like him. But instead, I think that his legacy is a much greater one and one that very, very few artists are able to achieve. And that's a legacy that is in each of us who have learned to see Smart's paintings or have appreciated them, that when we walk out into the world, we might be kind of walking down the street or we might be kind of going past a port in Italy. And kind of the first thing that comes to mind is that looks like a Jeffrey Smart. And to be able to paint our world or to be able to capture something so essential about our visual world that we then recognise it as something that he's revealed to us is a legacy that kind of I think very few artists achieve. So you don't, for example, uh, walk down the street and say that person looks like a Picasso very often, Um, whereas you kind of walk down the street and say that building has fallen out of a Jeffrey Smart painting. I think that's a a very democratic legacy to have. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks, Joe. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Joe Litson. Thank you for your company.